the Book Guy is brought to you by Audible. Go to paulthebookguy.com slash audible and get a free book just for signing up for a free trial. And we are back with another week, another episode of books, audiobooks, audio dramas, and podcasts. My name is Paul Alves, also known as the Book Guy, and with me this week, and I am Jim, the Book Guy Phillips. That's right. I, I hereby uh, pronounce you, Jim, the Book Guy. <laughs> how you doing, Jim? Uh, that's quite an honor. Thank you. I'm doing good, Paul. How are you? Very well, very well. Nice to have you on the show. Uh, folks, uh, Chris and Greg will be back at some point. Uh, I haven't, uh, you know, they're, they're not uh, unconscious in the trunk of my car. Uh, they will be returning soon. And uh, we have a new book guy joining us this week, Jim the Book Guy. Uh, Jim, please tell the people where you're from and, and what other podcasts you do. Uh, that's the story and you're sticking to it, huh? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, where am I from? I am from, well, I live in California. I'll say that. Uh, Ramona, California, <clears throat> just outside <laughs> America's finest city, San Diego. Nice. Long way from Canada. Yes. <laughs> this is the North American Union of Books happening right now, folks, right in your eardrums. This is it. Peace in our time. <laughs> So, so Jim, uh, it's been a while since we had a, a Paul the Book Guy podcast. We had uh, some technical issues. We've, we've been revamping the show. And uh, I got to tell the listeners, uh, there is a big change coming soon to the podcast. Uh, and I got all I got to say is there's lawyers involved in a good oh. way. In a good way. There are lawyers involved. So uh, that's all I can say for now. But the, there will be a huge change coming. Uh, another huge change has happened recently, Jim, is that uh, Paul the Book Guy is now on the No Agenda stream at uh, noagendastream.com or nagradio.com. Uh, if you are fans of uh, Adam Curry and John C. Dvorak's No Agenda, you are probably familiar with the stream. And now uh, Paul the Book Guy will be playing there uh, every Tuesday at noon, uh, as well as uh, our, our emergency broadcast system show is also there uh, Wednesdays and Saturdays at noon. So check us out there, folks. We'll be putting Exciting. a link. Yeah, it's very exciting. Very exciting. And uh, Jim, uh, we may be seeing Neil Desperandum on there soon. We'll talk about it after the show. Nice. <clears throat> so This is all in preparation for uh, getting picked up for syndication by Clear Channel, right? No, no never. Never. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to be picked up by a syndication for, by, by Clear Channel. That's fine. As, lo as long as there's, uh, you know, there's no clauses in the contract that says I can't talk about certain books and whatnot. <laughs> of course, we love all our friends at Clear Channel. Uh, Yada yada yada. So uh, we're going to get right into it, folks. Uh, we're we're uh, one of the changes in the in the show now is I'm going to put all the book news uh, and books and film and television at the uh, towards the back end of the show because I've noticed that a lot of you through our statistics, a lot of our uh, Canadian, American, Saudi Arabian, Korean, Irish listeners, uh, those are our top right there. Uh, I know I noticed that you keep going back to our back episodes. So I, I don't want you to have to listen to a bunch of untimely book news at the top of the show. So what we're going to do now with the show is do all of our book reviews and recommendations and stuff and, and interviews at the top of the show. And uh, the back end of the show, will have the book news. So uh, for those of you who are listening to a, you know, a two-year-old show, you can just, uh, as soon as we get to book news, you can just uh, end the episode there and, and you know, uh, keep going back in time as far as episodes. Okay, now I have to ask you on behalf of all these listeners, what about the listeners who are going back to listen to these old episodes specifically to fact check 
<laughs> well, they certainly, all, all they have to do is go to the back end of the show. <laughs> Uh, so we're going to start off, Jim. Uh, I, I've got a book that I just finished. Uh, I'm actually in the middle of, uh, of a Jill Edmondson book, which I'm going to bring to the table next week. Uh, I'm only saving it for the next episode because uh, both Greg and uh, and Chris are... Uh, I'm, oh, I forgot their names almost. It's been so long. <laughs> both Greg and Chris are also reading it. So I'm going to leave it for a three-way discussion on that one. But uh, this week I have... Fiction. 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 Ah, this is a, a book by John Wiseman, and he's a, a former, uh, you know, a tough guy, a Navy guy, former U.S. Navy SEAL with uh, connections in uh, in that whole uh, industry there. Uh, it's called KBL, Kill Bin Laden, and it's called A Novel Based on True Events. Now, now folks, this is a book uh, that is, uh, it's called Fiction in Name Only, and uh, there's been a couple of interviews and, and different uh, news stories that I've read about John Wiseman's book that uh, uh, basically point us in the direction that uh, this is only called fiction in order to protect his life and freedom. <laughs> um, it's a timely book. It's it's about the uh, the whole uh, you know uh, uh, attack in Pakistan and and the killing of uh, code name Geronimo. And uh, all the names in the book have been changed, including the president, the, you know, the secretary of state, uh, other than bin Laden's name, uh, all the names have been changed. But uh, he does hint in not in the in the promotion for this book, but in everything else, uh, he does hint that uh, the only reason things have been changed is because uh, had he claimed this to be a true story, uh, there probably would have been a couple of black SUVs showing up at his house, <laughs> you know. Uh, uh, Jim, this one would would appeal to uh, people who like the Tom Clancy novels, that kind of thing. Uh, again, it's more based in reality. You know, no Jack Ryan comes in to save the day. And uh, and one of the things that really uh, sets this book apart from the uh, the story we've been told in the media about the the Bin Laden raid is, is the fact that this raid only lasted like ten minutes, where where you know in the uh, the official stories it lasted you know an hour and a half or whatever. Sure. And, uh, and he makes a good point in the book that there, there are no SEAL team raids that last an hour and a half. Right. It's just not what they do. <laughs> so if it, if it does, they're doing it wrong. Right. Right. So, so, uh, let, let's put it this way. If this book was made into a movie, uh, I would say that the first, uh, three quarters of the movie would be, um, determining where bin Laden was, uh, and these, these men training on a, on a, life scale model of the compound on how they were going to get in quickly and back out. And, and, and the way that these uh, folks, everything I'm saying is based on what I learned in the book. Uh, this seal team, seal team six uh, or whatever the number would be in the book. Cause they changed everything. But um, the seal team would train on a, on a life uh, size replica of the building uh, based on, you know, information they would go in and they'd be basically fighting against, you know, with paintball guns or, you know, fake rounds, whatever, fighting against like SEAL Team 5, you know. So they would figure this out. And it took them like a week training on this mission over and over. Now imagine a 10-minute mission being trained over, you know, 12 hours a day for a week to the point where they got it, they did in 10 minutes. And um, normally I'll play an audible clip at the end of my chat, but... uh uh, this is a, a clip right from the beginning of the book, and it kind of sets the tone for, for what you're going to hear in the book. Now, uh, before I play it, Jim, I got to say that uh, from our listener feedback, 
I would say that our listeners are split about 50, 50 on as far as clips from the book. Um, liking them versus not liking. Them. Right. I'm, I'm on the side of liking them. Right. But, uh, again, my opinion doesn't matter cause it's your show. You're the listener. <laughs> it's your show. But, uh, right now we're split about 50, 50. And a lot of people have said, I love the, the previews. It gives me a taste of the book. And if I don't like it, I can fast forward. And I've gotten to the point where, where now that I know that the, the you know, the listeners are split 50, 50, um, I'm saying that, uh, my option as, as the, the guy at the, you know, uh, you know, making the decisions on the podcast, um, if you don't like the, the previews, you can fast forward three minutes, but if I take the previews out of the podcast, you can't fast forward them. They're just not there. So, um, you know, a lot of people do like them and, uh, here is, uh, a great, uh, it's a first, uh, little section of the book, uh, talking about the, the beggar in, uh, Pakistan. Part one, December 5th, 2010 to January 27th, 2011. Chapter one, Abbottabad, Pakistan, December 5th, 2010, 0821 hours local time. The beggar was nervous. You couldn't tell by looking, but he was. Still, he maintained his rounds. He wheeled himself onto the short street just off Narayan Link Road right after morning prayers at the Sakun Mosque. The shops were opening. He made his way up to the sidewalk tables in front of the tea room just the way he always did. He smiled. Good morning, brother, through broken, stained teeth at Wasim the tea-room proprietor, and accepted gratefully the tiny cup of sweet, dark, steaming brew that Wasim offered him whenever he showed up, sometimes in the morning, sometimes later. Wasim rubbed his balding head. He admired the beggar. After all, the beggar was Mujahideen. He was even aptly named Shahid, a fighter who had lost both his legs and most of four of his fingers when the detested Americans had hit his Waziristan compound with a missile from one of their armed predator unmanned aerial vehicles that killed Muslims without regard to their guilt or innocence. Shahid had come to Abbottabad a little over a month ago. From Peshawar, he'd said, and before that Waziristan, on his way to Islamabad. It wasn't far. Maybe he'd get there some day, God willing, to collect the money he was owed by the government those westernized thieves. Judging from the rough Urdu-tinged accent, Wasim figured the beggar was originally from up north, the rugged, harsh mountains close to the Afghan border. Some place like Drosh or Chitral, places the government, Wasim considered the president and most of the government bureaucrats in Islamabad to be puppets of the detested Americans, was afraid to go. They grew them tough up there in the northwest, thin-air jihadis who could carry sixty, seventy kilos on their backs all day, humping up and down the passes like mountain sheep, God's warriors, who extracted a good price from the infidels, and sometimes paid one, too. A sweet, Brother Shahid? Wasim always asked. You didn't want to offend someone who'd put his life on the line defending Islam against evildoers. The beggar set down the two lengths of wood he used to push the padded furniture dolly on which he traveled. God bless you, Brother Wasim. And you, Brother Shahid. Wasim excused himself, 
and returned almost immediately with a pastry, dripping honey sitting on a small rectangle of thin waxed tissue. He stood there in his shirt sleeves, pulled a well-used handkerchief out of his rear pocket, and wiped his forehead as if it were summer as he watched the beggar stuff the treat into his mouth with ruined finger stubs, then wipe his lips with a ragged tunic sleeve. Are you well? The beggar shrugged and sipped tea. As well I can be, thanks to God. He emptied the cup and, using both hands, offered it back to Wasim. The beggar looked around conspiratorially. There were strangers here yesterday. I saw them by the Bibi Amna Mosque. Yes, Wasim nodded. Four of them in army uniforms. Captains from Islamabad, I think. He paused. Visiting the military academy from the look of them. God be praised. The beggar picked up his sticks. I always wanted to go to military school. He tapped his rag-wrapped stumps with one of them. But God has other uses for me. God be praised. The beggar sighed. God be praised. And then he swiveled, pushed off, and foot by foot wheeled himself down the street to the corner by the Iqbal Market, where he sat for an hour, sometimes more, his back up against the wall, his wooden bowl in front of him, collecting alms and intelligence. So that's how it starts. Uh, you get you get a, a, a feel for it. Uh, this this beggar, he's going around packing. No one has any idea that he's you know not what he says he is, and turns out he's uh, an American soldier, veteran of the Iraq War, who lost both legs, but he's still a Marine and he still wants to do his job. And uh, you know. He can he can speak the language and, and walk the walk, so to speak, and uh, he would be the one who uh, eventually nailed down that uh, uh, target Geronimo was in this location. Now, uh, just an interesting book. Again, if if you were into the Tom Clancy type novels, the uh, it's it, it's I would say it's about split fifty fifty. It's a political thriller slash spy novel slash military novel there's a lot of uh politics involved in it too i'd say 25 percent of the novel is uh the politics of uh president i don't know what they call obama in this thing but uh president uh, x you know uh his decisions as far as political motivations and uh you know his eventual decision to to really put his uh arse on the line because uh you know, it must have been a tough decision for Obama to, you know, invade another country. <laughs> you know, had this gone wrong, you know, had, you know, uh, you know, had Osama not been there and, uh, you know, uh, he had just sent Marines in to kill 22, you know, a family of 22 in Pakistan. This could have gone really awry. You know, as it was, it still caused a big rift in relations between Pakistan and the United States, uh, you know, both allies. But imagine if, if that had not been Bin Laden and they had just gone in and, you know, shot up a bunch of Pakistanis. Could have been really bad. Uh, but, but folks, if, you, if you're into the Tom Clancy novels, if you like the political and the spy thrillers, and uh, I'm telling you right now, there's a touch of realism here. This guy's a former SEAL team member. Uh, don't get me wrong. I know if you're on SEAL Team 6 and you kill Bin Laden, you know, it's like Fight Club. If you're in Fight Club, the last thing you do we'll talk about is Fight Club. But uh, he does have the background to know how this uh, probably would have gone off. And if he did not get any inside information, you still have this background information from uh, uh, an actual uh, former SEAL team member. Definitely an interesting uh, read. 
for those of you who uh, who are into that kind of stuff. And uh, uh, Greg, a nod to you, my friend, Greg the Book Guy, uh, books and film and television. Uh, this would make a great movie. Uh, like I said, three quarters of the movie is them getting ready to to do the event, and the event would be the last ten minutes. But uh, a great pick, I think. KBL, Gil Bin Laden. Now, Jim, I believe you also have a pick today. I do. I do indeed. I believe it is. Science fiction. You even got the, the sci-fi jingle with the ceremony there. I love it. <laughs> uh, yes, but this is old school science fiction. Uh, this nice. is The Last Babylon by Pat Frank. And uh, Alas Babylon is, uh, it is, it is definitely science fiction, but it is, uh, as I said, old school science fiction. This is, was published uh, in 1959. Okay. And is um, <clears throat> Pat Frank, uh, who is not his real name, is uh, it's the pen name of, um, uh, what is it, uh, Henry Hart Frank, mm-hmm. uh, who was a war correspondent in World War II and afterwards. And this is his take on uh, basically World War III, uh, nuclear holocaust. Now, this is the beginning of the whole uh, fear of nuclear meltdown and nuclear war. And it was 59, you said it was published? 59, yes. Okay. I have not read this book. So, folks, folks, folks at home, I'm listening along just as you are. I'm, uh, I'm tied to the microphone, the headphones here. <laughs> yeah, so this is, you know, it's, so 59, you know, think back uh, if you're, uh, old enough, or for those of us who aren't quite old enough, you know, we've certainly heard the stories. This is, you know, certainly at the height of the Cold War. Uh, although, you know, prior to um, the Cuban Missile Crisis and all that, a few years uh, early. Uh, so it's, you know, so this novel is coming out right in the middle of that scare when it was, you know, this is something that could really happen. This isn't, you know, a wild fantasy this is a real possibility for today today being of course when the book was actually written right <laughs> um it is in it the his writing style is i i i have to say this it may turn some people off because he is uh first and foremost a journalist right uh, okay. and as a result his writing style while it's it's very engaging and it's a great novel and a wonderful read it is a bit thin on emotion okay okay it's it's a very it's the the whole thing comes across as a very passionless book and really all the characters you know we we kind of see things happen and when you know there's right so so so, so it is is a narrative like afraid and I recently but, read Area 51 uh, by Annie Jacobson. Same thing. She's more of a journalist, so she tells a narrative. Uh, so what you're saying is it, uh, it's more straightforward, facts, uh, not as descriptive. Is that what you're saying? Am I? It's exactly what I'm saying, okay. yes. Okay. Sorry to interrupt. It's what I do. That's, that's <laughs> Welcome okay. to Paul the Book Guy show. <laughs> that's why it's called Paul the Book Guy. <laughs> that may change soon. Another hint. Another hint of what's coming, folks. <laughs> So the uh, the the novel and the whole thing is it's not too long. I think it's just over three hundred pages, right around the three hundred page mark. Uh, the first ninety pages are really the lead in to the war, to the Holocaust, mm-hmm. to the atomic Holocaust, and the novel follows 
uh, a gentleman by the name of Randy Bragg, um, who lives in a small town, a fictional small town of Fort Repose, Florida, uh, which is supposed to be kind of a rural small town, Florida. Uh, He has a nice house on the river. Um, He gets along with his neighbors. And uh, his brother is a colonel uh, in the Air Force. And as the book opens, we kind of get a little picture of the town, and we get a little picture of Randy's life. And he gets a telegram from his brother saying, "Hey, my wife and kid, you know, I'm going to send my wife and kids to stay with you." Um, and that's kind of all he says in the uh, telegram, except he tags on this phrase, "Alas, Babylon," which of oh. course is a reference to the Book of Revelations in the Bible. Uh, and it's kind of this phrase that the two brothers had used throughout, say. You know, throughout their lives, anytime something bad was going to happen, you know, so Randy kind of gets this idea that his brother, okay, you know, his brother thinks that something really bad is about to happen, right? Uh, so, uh, Randy's sister-in-law and her two kids come to stay with him, and of course, her husband, you know, he's in the Air Force. He has to go back and work, and he's an uh, intelligence officer at uh, SAC Command in Omaha. And I think it literally like the day after she shows up is when the bombs start falling. And of course the novel proceeds from there because you know, it's, it's really total annihilation. All the, you know, the big cities are gone. Uh, the, you know, the, the people living in this one small town lose any contact with the outside world. You know, they haven't, you know, they, they can see what's happened. Some of the, um, Attacks are just close enough. You can, they can see the glow on the horizon. Uh, in one case, I think it's when Orlando um, is nuked, they can actually see the mushroom cloud from coming from that. Um, but other than that, they have absolutely no clue what's going on other than, yeah, something really bad has happened here. So they're cut off from all media and, and there's no yep. uh, media reports, radio. They just have to basically look in the horizon and see a mushroom cloud. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. You know, so very quickly they they lose power, they lose electricity, and um, you know the, then the rest of the novel is how do they survive? How do they put together? You know, some how do they put together? First of all, just the ability to survive more than a few days, and you know then how do they start to rebuild their family, their lives, their community? You know, into something that into some kind of organization that can actually survive, right? And it's interesting because you know many, at least in my experience, um, you know many of these post-apocalyptic post-apocalyptic novels really fall into a couple of categories, right? You have you know kind of the big picture where you're seeing all this stuff go on all over the world, and you're getting this picture of who's attacking who, where, and when. Right. And, you have the omniscient you know, view, yes, right. You know, or you're getting kind of this, you know, the the hero's view of, you know, okay, the apocalypse has happened, and now, you know, some somebody or some group of people are going out, and you know, they're they're able to put together their their own you know band of happy warriors, and you know, are defending the poor and and doing all that stuff. You know, th- this is none of that. Um, this is very much a the, this is very much, you know, rural, small town, America, middle class, 
survives the Holocaust, survives the atomic Holocaust. Now right. what do they do? Right. These these are my you know I gotta say right off the bat, folks, folks, those of you who have listened to the last eighteen shows, uh, you know right away Jim's a book guy because uh, we loves us some uh, end of the world novels. You betcha. <laughs> so you're now the fourth you book guy who loves it. But the, the, this is definitely my favorite kind. Uh, uh, without having read it, this is one of my favorite kind of end of the world novels where. Um, our heroes or our protagonists in, in, in the novel are kind of like we would be with no information. There's no, uh, you know, the guy who has the cure for the zombie virus is not in the group. Right. Uh, you know, there's no TV on. There's no, the president doesn't show up and, and end up in the group. Uh, they're just cut off just like we would be in, in a, you know, major uh, catastrophe. I love it. Exactly. It's, 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 that's, that's what I was thinking the, you know, the whole time. It's, it's, this is what I hope. I would be able to do and what I hope you know my friends and neighbors who live close to me would do as well. Okay. Uh, that said the the flip side of that of course and I I've heard some critiques of this is that it may come off as a bit optimistic. All right because you know most of there are a few bad quote unquote bad guys who show up in the novel right. uh, briefly and are eventually dealt with. But by and large, this is a novel about people figuring out how to live together and how to go on right. together. Well, not you know, apart, you, not yeah. you know, raiding the next village over. It's it it really is, you know, how do we get together and you know you have these skills to you know, be able to fish, and I have you know a a well that you know provides unlimited fresh water, and right. you know, this other guy is a great mechanic and can keep some of our. Th- know, that's how I running. would hope uh, you know a situation like this would be handled by people, yep. and you know exactly uh, just on a small scale, Jim. And again, I'm interrupting you, but <laughs> um, uh, here we had a. a a uh, power outage a couple years ago in Toronto and uh, in my neighborhood it lasted about a week and a half which doesn't sound like a big deal but in the big city it is because you know, I, I don't have sure. a well to get water from I don't have a windmill to give me power and uh, you know really people really gathered like my, my neighbors would come over you alright do you have any food you're good uh, you know because in our neighborhood we had to like drive for like you know eight or nine blocks to get any any you know uh, powered store where you could use your bank card your bank card was useless and um, there was a point, like two days in, uh, there was an ice truck driving around, knocking on the door and saying, would you like some ice? And I was like, well, how much is it, buddy? He's like, well, it's 99 cents a bag. I'm like, wow, that's like half price of what it was in the store. Like, you know, before the power went out, that's pretty cool. You know, so I have optimism that if something like this happens, uh, uh, most people would be more nurtured than, you know, destroy, yep. <laughs> you know, and, and dominate I, I do as well. The, uh, you know, certainly the uh, the major disasters that I've you know, lived through and you know, been an intimate part of. Uh, yeah. That's that's been my experience. Is uh, much more that I, I think the, that the majority and people and are and, majority people are good. And in a situation like that, uh, the the evil people that uh, would want to take advantage of it, they're outnumbered. Yep. I agree. Just saying. Sorry. <laughs> That's good. Positive tip today on the Paul the Book Guy show. Yeah, there you go. There you go. So the the one other thing that um uh, that I'll point out about the novel is uh again, this was written in 1959 and it it comes across as 1959. 
You know, it is it's it is very much a novel of its time. Okay. Uh, so as a reader, you ha- you really have to put yourself in that mindset of this is happening in 1959, not this is happening in you know 2011. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, first just from the technology standpoint, you know, there, there are a couple of places where you know I, I kind of caught myself and well, why don't you just do? Oh why wait, why don't they just use a <laughs> cell phone? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, well, why don't you just put up some solar panels? Oh yeah, wait a second, that's not okay. Maybe that's not right. going to work. <laughs> um, you know, but even beyond that, you know, as as a novel of that time, it does deal with, um, at least tangentially, you know, things like uh, the race issue and um, relationships between men and women. You know, and it's it's a different viewpoint and it's a different outlook. Oh, absolutely, yes. Uh, you know, to to its credit, uh, he he very quickly uh, he actually pretty much dispenses with the entire race issue in about two sentences. You know, where they kind of realize, you know, well, you know, we're completely cut off. It's just us. You know, okay, if somebody has that or somebody can do that or we need to work together to accomplish right. something. That's really the only thing that matters right That's now. That's it. A human's yeah, a human. None of that other go. junk matters. Yeah. Um, it's if you if you are someone who is, uh, however, very uh, sensitive to uh, let's call it sexism. There are a couple places where that kind of comes out well, a little but, bit. But hang on, Jim. I mean, it, it's a novel written in 1959. You can't scrub right. all of history. Uh, from sexism and racism. I mean, you know, uh, you know. Uh, ah, I hate it when people it, try to exactly. do that. And, and I mean, my opinion on you know, my opinion on it, and as I was reading it and, and afterwards, is you know that's that's part and parcel of the time. That's that that's one of the many things that really allows you as a reader to put yourself in that mindset. You know, but right. there are readers out there who are who are absolutely not able to do that and who would see that and just immediately get insulted and whatever. And that's, that's kind of my point is, you know, recognize where it's coming from, accept it and move on with your life and just, you know, acknowledge it for what it is. Take it for what it is. And and it's a lesson in itself. Uh, This is 1959. This is where we were. It's where we don't want to be now because we're in 2011. So I think you have a clip for this as well. Uh, I do. Uh, it's a it's a clip, and I believe it uh, goes like this. At first, Randy thought someone was shaking the couch. Graf, nestled under his arm, whined and slipped to the floor. Randy opened his eyes and elevated himself on his elbow. He felt stiff and grimy from sleeping in his clothes. Except for the dachshund, tail and ears at attention, the room was empty. Again, the couch shook. The world outside still slept, but he discerned movement in the room. His fishing rods, hanging by their tips from a length of pegboard, inexplicably swayed in rhythm. He had heard such phenomena accompanied earthquakes, but there had never been an earthquake in Florida. Graf lifted his nose and howled. Then the sound came, a long, deep, powerful rumble increasing in crescendo until the windows rattled cups danced in their saucers and the bar glasses rubbed rims and tinkled in terror the sound slowly ebbed then boomed to a fiercer climax closer randy found himself on his feet 
throat dry, heart pounding. This was not the season for thunder, nor were storms forecast, nor was this thunder. He stepped out onto the upstairs porch. To his left, in the east, an orange glow heralded the sun. In the south, across the Timaquan, and beyond the horizon, a similar glow slowly faded. His sense refused to accept a sun rising and a sun setting. For perhaps a minute, the spectacle numbed reaction. What had jolted Randy from sleep, he would not learn all the facts for a long, a very long time after, were two nuclear explosions, both in the megaton range, the warheads of missiles lobbed in by submarines. The first obliterated the sack base at Homestead and incidentally sank and returned to the sea a considerable area of Florida's tip. Ground zero of the second missile was Miami's International Airport, not far from the heart of the city. Randy's couch had been shaken by shock waves transmitted through the earth, which travel faster than through the air, so he had been awake when the blast and sound arrived a little later. Gazing at the glow to the south, Randy was witnessing, from a distance of almost two hundred miles, the incineration of a million people. The screen door banged open. Ben Franklin and Peyton barefoot and in flannel pajamas burst out onto the porch. Helen followed. The sight of war's roseate birthmark on the sky choked back their words. Helen grabbed Randy's arm tightly in both hands as if she had stumbled. Finally she spoke. So soon. It was a moan, not a question. I'm afraid it's here, Randy said, his mind churning among all the possibilities, including their own dangers, seeking a clue as to what to do, what to do first. That is The Last Babylon. And what's the author's name there, Jim? Uh, Pat Frank. Uh, that's, I'm going to put that definitely on my to-read list. It'll be uh, somewhere on top of Book Net Mountain at some point. And uh, Jim, we're going to be right back. Uh, after the break, uh, I have an interview with Scott McKenzie. He's a No Agenda fan and an author. Uh, the author of uh, One Day in Gitmo Nation and uh, Krampus, a story that I'm going to be uh, narrating soon on the stream and uh, hopefully for Nildis Brandom in the future. And there's another interview with Rochelle Melander, who uh, who wrote another fantastic book that she'll tell you all about uh, when we come back from the break. And then after that, Jim, uh, you and I will do the book news for the week. Excellent. And uh, you're going to like the promo that's coming up. Here you go. <laughs> I told you you'd like it. <laughs> Hi, this is Jim Phillips, editor and publisher of the literary audio fiction magazine, Nil Desperandum. And I would like to invite you, your family, and all your friends to join us for a very special event on Sunday, December 18th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, as we celebrate the holiday season with a live presentation of E.T.A. Hoffman's The Nutcracker and The Mouse King. Some of your favorite Nil Desperandum narrators and podcast personalities will be there, including Paul Alvins, Lorna Boyle, Richard Coons, and Charlie White. Please visit ndstories.com or bearcrawling.com for more information on how to join us live online 
to celebrate this holiday season. Hi, this is Orson Scott Card. I'm the author of Ender's Game and The Shadow Books, and you are listening to Paul the Book Guy. Scott McKenzie has written and published three novels, Rebirth and The Rising are horror thrillers. Uh, he kind of puts a fresh twist on the vampire genre. And uh, the one that I know him uh, more for is uh, One Day in Gitmo Nation, a satirical thriller filled with conspiracy theories, uh, political intrigue, zombies, and, of course, uh, no agenda uh, <laughs> inside jokes. Uh, after becoming a, a father in 2010, he was inspired by Roald Dahl's revolting rhymes to write a scary story for his young daughter. Uh, he was then introduced to an incredibly talented artist called Phil Ives, and the result was uh, one of the books we're going to be talking about today uh, called Krampus, A Christmas Tale. And uh, with us on the line right now, from uh, all the way from Manchester, England, is uh, Scott McKenzie himself. How are you doing, Scott? Hi, Paul. Good to speak to you. Thanks for having me on the show. Very nice to speak with you as well, sir. Now, um, I-, I know you from One Day in Gitmo Nation, uh, which is uh, something that Adam Curry was talking about. And actually, um, Sir Jimmy from Free Hollow Books uh, sent me your book, Inside Another Book. It was a little surprise for me. And uh, yeah, lots of fun, lots of uh, stuff. Can, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, how the how uh, One Day in Gitmo Nation came about? Well, I'd, I've written a couple of novels before about um, vampires trying to take over the world through nefarious schemes with vaccines. And um, I was always a big fan of the No Agenda show. And so I felt the themes that I'd talked about before, I'd written about, were quite similar to the things discussed on the No Agenda show. So um, that's where I got my inspiration. Um, <laughs> jotted down um, lots of different conspiracy theories that um, Adam and John talk about on the show. And then realised that I could uh, string, string a novel together um, separate it out into different stories, link them all together and um, put together a, a thriller that um, takes in different different genres, a bit of horror, a bit of mystery. Um, and so it, seem, it seems to have gone down quite well with yeah, no agenda it, listeners. It did. And, and yes, and you, uh, you do string together all these uh, different uh, conspiracy theories really well. And uh, uh, as a no agenda listener, of course, it uh, definitely there's a lot of little inside jokes there and uh, you know, uh, mentions uh, great, great stuff. And, and now, now I'm wondering, how do you go from that to Krampus, a Christmas tale, which I'm holding in my hand right now? Yeah, it's still a bit scary, and that's what I really wanted to do. Um, becoming a father, it severely cuts down the spare time you've got to write a full-length novel. Um, but I've still got that writing itch. I've got a scratch, so um, I thought I'd write my little girl a scary story. Um, and it, it wouldn't, I mean, this book wouldn't have come about if I hadn't been introduced to the artist, um, Phil Ives. Um, he's the brother of a guy I work with, um, and he's, the work he's done on this is just awesome. All I did was write a silly little rhyme, and um, he's done all the pictures that go in the book, and it's just some incredible work he's done. Yeah, the, the artwork, I'm just flipping through, the artwork is, is fantastic. Uh uh, Krampus really does look mean and grumpy, and uh, he really captures, uh, you know, the little girl and Santa Claus. It's it's really well done, really, really well put together. And uh, we're going to be doing an audio version. We discussed before the show uh, for this, and we'll put it on the uh, on our stream and then the Bear Crawling Nation 
uh, has a, a podcast called Nil Disparandum. Uh, I think we're going to be doing a little, a little uh, take on your book uh, for the Christmas season. And uh, Well, thank you very much, Paul. Well, not a problem. I, I really appreciate you giving us the opportunity to, to put it together. And uh, uh, the art by Phil Ives is amazing. And we're also going to bring to the audio version, uh, Sir Jeff Smith has uh, donated some of his time. He's going to be putting it to a soundtrack as well. So this could be interesting. Thanks very much. I had originally no intention of getting this ready for this Christmas. It was just a silly little story. And if I had one copy ready to read to my daughter, yeah. then... That was all I was intending to do. So uh, yeah, that's the way this is going. It's yeah, thanks to everyone involved. Brilliant, and uh, yeah, I love the story. And uh, now it's uh, tell us a little bit about the story. Well, it's a character I, w- I wasn't aware of, but um, uh, just a couple of months ago now, when I um, heard about this character in Christmas mythology, um, that's kind of been airbrushed out of the version of Christmas kids get these days, as Santa Claus gives good kids nice presents um, and there's Krampus who gives naughty children um, bad presents um, and so that was the thing that really hooked me in is the idea of um, some horrible monster being friends with Santa Claus <laughs> and them comparing notes and deciding who's naughty who's nice and who gets the good presents and who gets a bag of sheep's brains or a dead mouse <laughs> under the tree instead of a rocking horse. So are you, are you saying that Krampus is an actual, uh, uh, I mean, historical uh, part of, of the Christmas tale? Or is, is this this? Yeah. Wow. Okay. And it's, it's not actually something I've looked into too much when I was writing it. But um, since, since we've done the book, I've done a little bit of looking online. And um, I, I need to check in with Phil whether he did actually check it out before doing the art as well because you go to there's sites like krampus.com and this whole um following that i didn't even know existed and um the character is is very similar although the one in our book is a little more child friendly yeah yeah he still looks mean though i mean i gotta say he's got the horns and he's got a a monocle i believe for some reason Yeah, I gave a copy to one of the guys I work with and um, it scared his kid because that picture on the cover, he thought Krampus' eye was falling out of his head. Um, <laughs> so I've managed to give one child nightmares already, which I'm quite proud of. Now, um, before this, you, you had uh, three novels, did you not? You had the okay, Rebirth and the Rising, which I have not read yet. And they're horror thrillers. Do you, want to, do you want to tell us a little bit about those as well? Yeah, I mean, that was purely just from me suddenly coming up with a desire to write a novel. Um, I'd done a course in film studies at night school and um, as part of that we had to do some storyboards and opening, write an opening scene of a screenplay for a film and things like that. And so it, it, it came from that really and then found myself with a desire to write a novel and strung those ideas out um, into a whole story. Um, and then once I've written that and the rising, then I discovered that every other aspiring author out there has written vampire novels as well. And so when it came to One Day and Get My Nation, that's where I thought I'd branch out into uh, something else. Um, you know, those, those books are out there, published them in blogs, um, but it was One Day and Get My Nation that um, got me a bit of attention, got me uh, Rhino the Bearded recording an audio book. Oh, yes, I've been Even. listening to that. He's been doing it in, in, a, as a, in a serial format, uh, piece by piece. Uh, yeah, I'm really enjoying that. Yeah, three or four sub-chapters at a time. And um, now I'm enjoying listening back to it because it's, it's, it's 
about two years since I wrote the thing, and so I've kind of forgotten some things that are going on there, and it's, it's, diff- it's funny hearing it in someone else's voice. Now, uh, with, with Krampus, The Christmas Tale being out now, uh, I know your, your new father, was it uh, last year you, uh, you had your new daughter? Is she one years old? Is that the... Yes, just turned one not that long ago. Oh, brilliant. So you must be really busy uh, as a new dad, but uh, is there anything else that you have in the works or, uh, you know, uh, planning for the future novel? That you're working on? Oh, there's there's always ideas on the go, but I think um, it might be another one or two um, kids' stories. Um, I've got a few ideas floating around. Um, there's always ideas for more. No agenda novels. Um, the vampire novels finished on a cliffhanger, so I've got I've got a job to do to finish off That's there right. as well. So you, you can't leave them hanging. Can't leave them hanging. But uh, yeah, if if uh, your future kids' novels are, are, or kids' uh, stories are. Uh, as good as this one, yes, you definitely please keep going on. And Scott, where can folks find your books or more information on yourself? The blog where I publish um, the novels, um, details about Krampus's startupfiction.com, um, details about One Day and Get My Nation, um, of course, we found at noagendanovels.com. Um, and Krampus, there's a Kindle version out there as well, so you can find me in the Kindle store. Ah, nice. We'll put links to all that in our show notes so that the folks at home can uh, take a look. Excellent. Thanks for thanks for letting me get the commercial break in there. <laughs> and hopefully, maybe we'll have you back on for the Christmas special. Uh, we'll we'll have a little chat and uh, before we play the uh, the first airing of the Krampus tale. Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah, look forward to it. Uh, thanks for your time, Scott, and uh, we'll see you for Christmas. Okay. Thank you. Write-a-thon, write your book in 26 days and live to tell about it, is Rochelle Melander's new book. And we have her on the line now, all the way from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Hello, Rochelle. Hi, Paul. How are you? Um, Question. Is it really possible to write a book in 26 days? Absolutely. Uh, I wrote this book because actually a friend and I had written a book in nine days. Wow. And we didn't think it was possible. We were given two weeks by the publisher to get it done. Um, we wrote it nine days, added it, it in two more. Uh, I actually wrote Write-A-Thon during 2009's National Novel Writing Month in just 26 days. So you can do a 50,000-word book in 26 days. Wow. And, and, and I was thinking about that before and we discussed beforehand, but uh, your book could be called the uh, NaNoWriMo How-To Guide. And one thing I did with the book is I added a section for nonfiction writers because a lot of nonfiction writers I talked to felt left out during the novel writing month. So this means you can do your NaNoWriMo anytime you want, any month you want, or any 26 days you want. So you can do, you know, 13 weekends if that makes you happy. Now, now uh, what, are, what are some of the, 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 the tips that you have in the book that you'd like to share with some of our listeners right now? The, we have a lot of writers who are, are listeners. And uh, give, give us a little, uh, some examples of what they would find in, in the book Write-A-Thon. Sure. Uh, one of the things I like to tell people is to find your genius time and write during your genius time every day. Genius time is the time of day when you have the energy to write. Um, So for me, that is not after lunch. You know, after lunch, I'm ready to take a nap, read a book, uh, surf the net. I'm a morning writer, but I have a lot of clients who write in the middle of the night or between five and seven. So you find your genius time when you have that writing energy. And then you block that time off because studies will show that if we set down the when, why, and how we're going to do something, 
we are twice as likely to get it done. So then you schedule that day, that time every day in your calendar. And if you do that, you're going to be twice as productive because you're going to meet those deadlines and, and get your writing done. Absolutely. Now, now I'm just getting through write-a-thon now, and uh, I'm, every page I turn, uh, I find something that, that just blows my mind that I should have been doing this uh, as far as my writing for the longest time. Is there anything you can, any advice that you give to people as far as how they write and what they write with? As in, uh, should they be writing on a laptop? Should they be writing in pen and ink? Or what kind of application to use? Is there anything that are more geeky writers? Uh, any kind of <laughs> advice you can give them? Well, you know, there, there are so many great products out there. Um, I know a lot of my clients like Scrivener because it allows you to kind of put all your disjointed thoughts in lots of places and put it together. What I tell writers is, do what works for you. Uh, I recommend that all writers um, develop some sort of a system. So I would love, uh, I do project notebooks, so I have a three-ring binder where I stick things um, that have to do with whatever nonfiction or fiction project I'm looking at. I also, the reason I like Scrivener and any kind of um, Word document is that you can put everything in there and then search it. So for this book, I took a lot of my research from my three-ring binder and typed it into a document. And then when I was writing and wanted to find out the research on such and such, I would just search the document and it would pop up for me. Um, so anything, any kind of tool like that that helps you is going to be great. Um, but, you know, as I've met a lot of writers, I know that some writers are real techno geeks and some are terrified of technology. So you have to do what works. Uh, I encourage if if you are a technological writer, um, I think it's important to have a smartphone or an iPad because that makes your writing portable. Right. So you can either use the recording device to be able to talk into it um, or you can use any of the many note taking devices that are out there. Um, and a lot of my clients just um, for the on the iPad, especially will just email themselves. So pop up a new email, you know, I set, I lay my iPad out like it's um, horizontally and then type like I'm typing on a typewriter on the little keypad on it. And um, I can email myself notes about my book at any time. Now, now the timing of writing notes, I, I believe, is really important, too, because I know uh, the, the the one fiction book that I've been writing for the last 20 months, <laughs> I really should have got, well, got your book a lot, a lot uh, earlier. <laughs> But yeah. <laughs> I know that I wouldn't even be writing that thing if, if I hadn't have written down. Uh, I kind of woke up one day and I had this idea. I might have been from a dream and I just wrote it down. And had I not written it down at that moment, I probably wouldn't remember it the next day. So, yeah, note taking has got to be really important. I mean, write it when you, you know, when it comes to your mind, just write it down. And I guess you can flesh it out later, you know, in your genius time. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think I think I heard Anne Lamott say that. You know, you better write it down because that that little bit of, of, of genius wisdom is going to fly right over your head and land in my head if you don't do that. Um, and so I'm always I, I try to do that. And I think smartphones are great. I have my little note feature in my iPhone that I type little ideas in and I go back and go, OK, so why was I writing this about a dog? I have no right. idea. <laughs> I do the same thing, and uh, it's funny when when people are handling my phone. Sometimes they'll they'll you know just playing with it. They haven't, haven't seen an iPhone before. They'll play with it. And they'll they'll launch my notes app 
and just sort of look at me strange because some some of the notes <laughs> I'm writing a fiction science fiction thing and they'll read okay. some of the notes and they'll go there's something wrong with this Paul guy. <laughs> now, oh, that's um, one of the quotes in here that really hit me was uh, there's a, the section near the end where why hire an editor? And then the quote is from Jan Burke and it says, uh, you'd be surprised how many famous novels have lived a good part of their histories being known as the, we'll call it the crap book. Uh, yes. And, and <laughs> It's so true, and uh, uh, I think uh, so many writers that I've met, that's the one thing that uh, they tell me is that, uh, you know, uh, you can't edit yourself, and, and that's one of the yeah. most important things is to hire a good editor to to go through your book and, and turn it from the crap book to, you know, a good book. Uh, yeah, and I think, you know, a, a real good editor can help you communicate what you wanted to communicate in the first place. Whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction, the editor can say, yeah, I know you know what you mean, but I have no idea what you mean. Right. Can, can you tell us uh, what, where, where people can reach you, where they can read your blog? Sure. I'm at rightnowcoach.com, W-R-I-T-E, nowcoach.com. Um, I'm a certified professional coach, so I went through coach training um, and I've been editing and writing books. Um, this is my 10th book. So I've been editing and writing books for more than 10 years. Uh, and so I work both as an editor and as a writing coach. I really work with people at all stages of the writing process. Um, and I wrote the book because I wanted to put kind of all of the things I tell my clients into a nice little portable device that they could carry around with them. Um, and I, I right now, Coach, if you go there and click on the blog, um, I blog every day. And I have a ton of guest bloggers um, offering their wisdom as well. Excellent. Um, it's been a lot of fun talking with you today, Rochelle. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back soon to talk about, about writing. That's great, Paul. And good luck with your book. I hope you get it done and edited <laughs> and out. I, I may be uh, tweeting you soon for some help. That would that would be great. I'd love to talk to you more. And we are going to have a special on writing coming up in the new year, and I hope that you would return for that. Uh, sounds like you'd be the perfect guest for that show. I would love to come and offer some more tips. Hey, this is Jeff Smith, the guy who does all the jingles from thejeffsmith.com, and you're listening to Paul the Book Guy. And there you go. That was the uh, two interviews, Scott McKenzie and Rochelle Melander. Lots of fun. It's been a while since we've done book news, my friend Jim. Uh, yes, it has. In, in fact, it's been a while since there's been a podcast at all. Uh. And I, th I think <laughs> the most interesting, the most important news that our listeners are waiting for is where the heck is Paul the book guy been? Uh, folks, we, <laughs> good, good question, Jim. And uh, uh, we have been retooling the show. Uh, what happened originally, the first week we skipped was... Uh, uh, Greg, the book guy's dad passed away and, uh, not only was he, uh, Greg's dad, he was a good friend to all the book guys, uh, the original three, myself, Greg, and Chris, uh, he was also my employer. Uh, he is the owner of the, the property where book mountain is situated. We basically skipped a whole week for that. And then, uh, we had some technical issues. Uh, <laughs> all I gotta say, Jim, if you're on a Mac, seriously, if you're on a Mac, and you're backing up the time machine. These guys already saved my butt once since my last Mac catastrophe. Uh, if you uh, back up the time machine, uh, you're backing up to a physical drive. And uh, as a PC nerd from long ago, 
I know that you have to replace a physical hard drive, especially the ones with the springs, the ones that make the noise, the non-SD drives. You got to back them up. You have to replace them every two years anyways. These guys saved my ass just a week ago. I I swear by them. Uh, If you go to dollydrive.com, enter the promo code PaulTheBookGuy, all small letters. They're going to give you 15% off uh, forever. Uh, What a great service. They saved my butt. Now I got a new drive in my MacBook. The studio is back up and running. And then uh, shortly, I will be buying a second. Uh, I'm going to be buying a MacBook Air, which is a lot lighter. Uh, I can, you know, uh, carry it a lot easier. Uh, so I will have a backup studio, you know, in my back, in my knapsack from here on in. Paul, the book guy is going to be a weekly show. We are now on the no agenda stream. So uh, I'm on a schedule now, a uh, weekly show. And that's where we've been. Basically, we've had some issues. We're retooling. And within a week or two, there's going to be a big change in the stream, uh, a name change, uh, a format change. It's going to be great. And uh, you folks are going to like it. And that's my short answer. <laughs> <laughs> that's at dollydrive.com, you said. Dollydrive.com. Basically, instead of hooking up your, your USB drive to your MacBook, MacBook or uh, other Mac, it only works on Macs. It works with Time Machine. Uh, you basically hook up your time machine to the internet. So no matter where you are, as long as you're on the internet, your stuff is being backed up. And again, uh, if you need to restore it, as long as you're on the internet, it'll restore back to your drive, dollydrive.com. And uh, when I had the original failure, well, the original failure, I didn't have Dolly Drive. That was my failure. (laughs) (laughs) So I got Dolly Drive. I thought it was, I thought it was a drive problem. So I uh, reformatted the drive, being a PC nerd. I reformatted the drive, full format, like a three-hour-long format. Three days later, the drive failed again. And I was like, oh, crap, not again. You know, Jeff Smith had just sent me back all my jingles. Uh, Pat Vickstrom had just sent me back all my uh, my art. I had just gotten as many of the DVD backups I had back on the system, and it died again. So it wasn't the drive. It was my motherboard, and uh, the, the Andrew... Sherway Gardens Apple, what a nice guy. They replaced the insides of my MacBook out of warranty. Uh, it had been the, the motherboard had been killed by the power supply, yada, yada, yada. But when uh, rehooked up, hooked up to Dolly Drive, everything restored. And I have a pretty fast internet connection. So under two hours, I had everything back on my system and working fine. And uh, I, right away, the, I, Initially, I had a problem, actually, Jim, to be honest with you. I had a problem restoring because I had uh, it wasn't the original drive. I had thrown out the drive I had originally and bought a new one. I bought a solid drive. Like those solid state drives, pff, wow. My computer is like 10 times faster now, <laughs> I got to say. But the, the, they gave an issue with the Dolly Drive restoring. So I, I sent them a support request and I said, look, I'm having a problem. I, I changed drives. I have a brand new drive in my system now. I can't restore my Dolly Drive. They called me back in three minutes. And I was, as I was speaking to the guy, he said, no, it's our company policy. If anyone has a problem restoring, we call them back within five minutes because restoring your digital life is of utmost importance. That's good service. Yeah. And when I heard that, I said, listen, do you, you want to sponsor some podcasts? Because <laughs> that's awesome. Because you know what? It is your digital life. It really is. <laughs> like, I don't know about you folks at home. I Like... It is a cleansing. You know what? When, when you lose all the crap on your computer, it's a cleansing because that, that's when you find out what's really important. It's kind of like your house burning down. You know, you may think everything in your house is important, 
But when your house burns down, that's when you realize, well, all I really wanted was my child or my children, my wife, maybe your wife, uh, you know, these three books that were really important to me, this book of photos, uh, that hat, this jacket, and that's it. My iPad and maybe this pair of shoes and the rest of it all can burn, you know, and that's kind of like when I lost all those files. Yeah, I really wanted my Paul the Book Eye episodes back, and I lost one through three. They're now officially the lost episodes, <laughs> you know. But I lost my jingles. I lost my the, the the key important stuff. I lost it. So when these guys called me in three minutes and said, "Look, we'll help you get your st- stuff back," and they did, and, and you know what? Use the promo code Paul the Book Guy. You get fifteen percent off for the the you know the entirety of your stay with them. And uh, you start off with 250 gigs, and every month you stay with them, they give you a bonus five gigs. So if you don't add more than five gigs of uh, crap to your computer every month, uh, Dolly Drive will basically do you for the longest time, you know. But one thing we haven't done in a while, Jim, uh, has been the book news. So, you know, the first couple of uh, stories here may be a little stale, <clears throat> but I really didn't want to talk about them. Oh, I got to play this, the, the jingle. I'm getting, I'm getting like, uh, not used to this. I got to play jingle. Hang on. <laughs> you can't go without the jingle. Book news. Ah, uh, there you go. Uh, I feel better now. There you go. Now we know where we're at. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, one of the biggest news uh, in the last three weeks has been, uh, Rakuten's purchase of Kobo. And I have a quick clip. Uh, I know it's, uh, you know, about two weeks old, but here you go. Big box bookseller Indigo said uh, Tuesday that it would sell its majority stake in Kobo, its e-reader spin-off. The buyer, Rakuten, an internet services and e-commerce giant, sometimes called the Amazon of Japan. Kobo CEO Michael Serbinis is with us to talk about the next chapter of the global e-reader saga. Great to have you here. Thanks. What does it mean for you? I mean, you've got a new owner. Uh, what's going to change? This is really about Kobo having the Goliath at its back to get bigger, faster, expand internationally, and really go after that global e-reading market. Um, it's not also a concession that Indigo could not get you there, that, this, that they did not have deep enough pockets? That yeah, the challenge in this space, and you know, from the very outset, was that the competition were the Goliaths. They were Amazon, they were Apple. And in a very short span of time, we've been able to do amazing things on a, on a shoestring budget. Now we've got a Goliath with a massive balance sheet on our, uh, on, on our side, really helping us to take it to the next level, which you know, would be challenging for Indigo. So uh, Japan is obviously a very attractive market, and right away there's sort of great sales potential, I'm sure uh, next year looks good. But is that also a gateway to Asia? Is it, is it easier for Kobo to get into China than it would be for the Kindle? Uh, absolutely. Uh, so Rakuten has about 50 million customers already in Japan. That gives us 50 million new readers right away. Yeah. They've got a partnership in Japan, in uh, China rather, with Baidu, the Google of China. So that gives us access. They're into Thailand, they're into Indonesia, they're into Taiwan already. They're also into Western Europe, in the UK, France, and Germany. So right away, we've got this huge footprint in Asia and Europe that will just accelerate our growth. So uh, not a big story here, Jim, but... Uh uh, the Kobo, I don't know if you're familiar with it, uh, our, our Canadian bookstore, uh, Indigo, uh, their, their sort of Kindle was the Kobo. And uh, sure. Decent Machines, um, they were a, uh, a big stakeholder in Kobo, uh, which apparently now they've sold to Rakuten. And uh, uh, most of us here don't even know what a Rakuten is or, you know, the, the, the Chinese uh, uh, search uh, engine. But uh, 
two-thirds of the ebook market right now is uh, outside of North America. So uh, for Kobo, being bought by the Japanese company Rakuten is huge. And they gain an access to the Asian market. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, Indigo still retains, uh, you know, the use of the Kobo tablet. And uh, the, the the Kobo tablet uh, has a, a distinction between the Kobo tale- tablet and the uh, Amazon tablet is that the, the Kobo books are not locked down. They are locked down to the Kobo. And uh, some of them are even just uh, non-DRM'd EPUBs. So if you have a Kobo, uh, you can buy from uh, various different stores or you can get an unlocked EPUB and, and read that. Uh, I think this is a good move for Kobo anyways, uh, moving into the Asian market. Huge. So is, is the Kobo a, just an e-reader or is it a general tablet? Uh, there, there is a, a Kobo version that has some other apps, but uh, it's generally an e-reader. And I gotta say, I almost bought a Kindle the other day here in Canada. I was at the local. Uh, oh, I'm gonna call it a Best Buy. It wasn't a Best Buy. It was a. Uh, what was the Radio Shack? Uh, became the. Uh, regardless, the store I went into, regardless of what its name was, they had these things under glass in boxes. So I gotta tell you right now, folks, if you ever want to not be enticed to buy something put it in a box and then throw it under glass, put a lock on the glass and then understaff your store. Like when I bought my iPad, I walked into a store where there was three tables full of iPads. They were chained to the table. Don't get me wrong. It's like these spring loaded chains, but I played with an iPad for about an hour before I said, I want one of these. Yep, you can pick it up. You can touch it. You can feel it. Right. So, so there was a Kindle touch there. There was a Kindle, uh, the black and white, uh, that's what I want because I have my iPad. It works. It's color. I can read my magazines on it. I didn't want a color device. I know about the Kindle Fire and it stutters on uh, playing video. It stutters playing Netflix. I'm not there to buy a Kindle Fire to play video games or or watch Netflix on it. Uh, and I really don't want a Kindle Fire. I want a uh, an e-reader screen, uh, a non-backlit black and white e-ink straight uh, screen. So I see these boxes. And I couldn't, for the life of me, get someone to come over and open the freaking case to let me see the box. Now, I know they wouldn't let me open the box. Like, I want to know what it looks like. How heavy is it? Uh, no, no display device. Uh, I couldn't even hold the box in my hand to see how much the box weighed. So that was a huge fail. And that was like about half an hour in the store. And I just turned around. And on the way out, someone said, can I help you? I was like, no, not anymore. <laughs> I'm, ha- I'm happy with my iPad. <laughs> you know, we're good. Uh, other book news, the, uh, it's official. We called it here. I believe all, all the, th- all the original three book guys called it. Sorry, Jim, you weren't there yet. So it wasn't, nope. it wasn't four book guys, but, uh, we called it the Steve jobs biography is now the number one book on Amazon and on a lot of other stores. Now I don't have the list of the other stores, but it's, it's official on Amazon. It is now the number one selling book on Amazon for 2011, which is incredible, uh, based on the fact that it came out in November. Yeah, that's a uh, pretty short time to 
be Absolute. jumping up that far. It, it, it outsold on the other everything. Hand, it's, it's really not that big a surprise. I don't think that's that no, big a stretch. It, it really is not. It really is not a big stretch. But uh, wow, if you if you ever if you walk by past a, a bookstore in the last month, you've seen the pile of uh, Steve. Like they really pushed this. I mean, we're talking about displays with you know five hundred copies piled on top of each other, making like Steve Jobs biography pyramids and stuff. You know, it was like the old cans back in the fifties. You know, they pile up the the cans of peach. Uh, you know. <laughs> other other book news here in Toronto, uh, AM 1010 CFRB had this story. Far fewer kids like to read when compared to 12 years ago. A report out today involving data from more than 240,000 Ontario students shows the percentage of grade 3 students who say they like to read dropped from 75% in 1999 to 50% this year. Percentage of grade sixers from 65 to 50 percent. An education advocacy group calls that a worrying trend. Now, Jim, this is the kind of story that I call BS. <laughs> First of all, I can take a survey today that's 75 percent. If it's a, like, let's say the sample is 500 people, and I can take the same survey tomorrow with another 500 people and say, Oh my God, literacy has gone up to 90% in one day. In one day, Ontario has raised their literacy rate by 25%. Folks, for all of those of you in Ontario, in my home province, that are listening to this crap on the radio, do not panic, do not fear, do not be afraid. As long as you introduce books to your children, read books to your children, uh, show your children. I mean, pick up a book. Read it to your kids. Read it. Read, make voices. Make it exciting for them. It's better than any movie they'll ever watch. Turn off the Door Explorer on the Xbox and sit down and read, you know, Lord of the Rings to your kid. You know, a bunch of people walking for, you know, 25 hours of book reading. It'll be fun. I don't know. What do you say, Jim? Like these, these surveys, uh, literacy's up, literacy's down, 10%, 20%. And, and they only sample 500 kids. I don't know. Well, I mean, there's all the, you know, of course, all the statisticians would say, yeah, it's a, you know, suitable sample size and an error rate of this. And, you know, they, but in the end, of course, I mean, they can make it, they can make the survey say whatever they want it to. And in the end, does it really matter? I mean, (laughs) you know, the. I I don't think it, do you think it does? Does I I don't think so. Well, I agree with you. 100% of people think. (laughs) This survey does not matter, <laughs> right? So we'll just you know, move. It, it's a you know, it's up to you. You know, it, it's up to you as a as a parent to either encourage that or not, right? <laughs> see, see, my mom always encouraged me to read, and and I found really quickly that uh, you know the the special effects, the voices, the everything in my head was a lot better than a, an hour and a half movie. And but don't get me wrong, there are you know uh, Alex the movie guy, you know seventh row center. There's some good movies, and uh, they're better than the books I read. But the majority uh, the books are better. But we will move on to one of the first uh, books that I ever read. Comic books, comic books, comic books. Ah, you know what? In the 40s and 50s, uh, parents would tell their kids, put down that crap. Don't read that crap. Get yourself a novel in your hand, son. And you know, now in 2011... If your kid's reading a comic book, he's probably going to be in the gifted program. 
<laughs> surveys aside, folks, surveys aside, but we have this story from uh, a week and a half ago. Sorry, folks, belated uh, comic book news. A legendary comic book stolen over a year ago is up for sale. Why does this guy sound like George Takei? Sorry. <laughs> a legendary? Oh, yes. At auction, it's expected to shatter a record for the most expensive comic. The high-grade copy of the first Superman edition was stolen in 2000 from the home of a West Coast comic book collector. ComicConnect.com says an investigation ultimately led to a California entrepreneur who bought the contents of a storage unit. It was offered to us by a gentleman who was brokering it from somebody who had purchased it out of a storage locker. It was a guy who brokered it from another guy who took it from another guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as sure. soon as we saw the image, we recognized it as being the copy that was stolen because it has three very distinct printing defects that are unique to this book alone. Back in the year 2000, Action Comic Issue Number 1 broke the record for the most ever paid for a comic book, $150,000. That record was shattered 10 years later. But Comic Connect says Superman isn't going to let that record stand. Well, what makes this copy so special is, first of all, it's the highest graded copy known to exist. It's a 9.0 on a scale of 1 to 10. Last year, we sold the copy in 8.5 condition for $1.5 million. That was March of 2010. That was, at the time, the highest graded copy. Now, this comic is the highest graded copy at 9.0. The auction at ComicConnect.com for Action Comic, issue number one, concludes November 30th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Mark Hamrick, Associated Press. Well, I looked into this story, and uh, Associated Press got a couple of uh, facts wrong. First one, it's Action Comics, not Action Comic. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Uh, second, they didn't do their research because this unknown California, this, uh, hang on, I do my George Takei, <laughs> this unknown California comic collector. Yeah, he just happens to be this unknown guy who named his kid Cal-El. His firstborn son's name is Cal-El. Uh, he's done a couple movies and his name is Nick Nolte. <laughs> so this was Nick Nolte's uh, action comics number one that uh, got uh, stolen. Uh, it was recovered from a uh, one of these uh Storage locker sales mm -hmm. uh, had identifying marks on it. He got it back. He bought it for 150 grand, and it was sold for 2.16 million, which is now a record. Uh, a nine out of ten condition comic book, 2.16 million sold for 10 cents when it was on the market. Wow! <laughs> and yes, folks, Nick Nolte's son, Cal L. Nolte. <laughs> nice. He's, he's awesome. So, so we're going to move right on, Jim. Books on film and television. Podcast favorite book, Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card. A uh, uh, little news casting here. Uh, and I know sometimes I gripe on Greg about doing the casting news, but Harrison Ford uh, has been slated to play the general in uh, Ender's Game. Pretty cool. Um, other casting news, George Clooney. Apparently, is interested in playing Steve Jobs for the uh, uh, the uh, film version of the Jacobson novel. Oh, please no! <laughs> I, I, you know what? I think he's a little bit old to play the part. I, I would think you'd want someone. I'm, I'm thinking uh, in their thirties that would look young, and that way you can make uh, do the makeup on them to look twenty or forty or fifty. Yes, yeah. I, I think George I think Clooney Clooney's not... a little bit old for it. 
I agree with you, my friend. I agree with you. you If I see George Clooney trying to be, you know, Steve Jobs working next to, you know, Waz in their garage and they're. I want Mick Foley as Waz. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying. Yeah, only if he can bash George Clooney over the head with the uh, yeah with the Apple prototype. One, that'd be great. <laughs> uh, Jim, before we go, um, I'm just going to update everybody on the Christmas donation for Operation Santa Claus. Uh, that's where we we are donating. A bunch of people donated. Uh, some of our uh, the pub the book publishers donated. Some of my customers from the print industry donated uh, for the Canadian troops to go abroad for their missions abroad as a gift to them and a gift to their. Uh, their libraries across the world. Uh, we found out that we were a little bit late for the Christmas donation. Uh, apparently, you got to have it like October because uh, it all gets shipped by sea. So uh, because the donation we're getting ready is not would not have made it for Christmas, uh, we're going to make it a January or a February donation. Uh, right now, it looks like it's going to be about a pallet, uh, about one skid full of books and audiobooks. Uh, Very nice. So I have up the ante. Uh, I was told that uh, with the rounding down of the Afghan mission, we're looking at somewhere around two to 3,000 Canadian troops. So I think I'm going to try my best to get it so that we can have one book or audio book in the hand of every Canadian soldier, period, uh, when we do the donation. So uh, if anyone wants to help out, just contact paulthebookguideme.com. Uh, we are about halfway to our target, I would say, at this point. I am trying to get one book or audiobook from the Paul the Good Book Guy uh, from the Paul the Book Guy podcast into each and every Canadian soldier's hand, so uh, him or her can uh, enjoy a book on us. It's a worthy cause and an ambitious goal. Absolutely, <laughs> and you know what, Jim? Thank you for joining us this week. It was a lot of fun. You brought a great book to the table, uh, Last Babylon, which I am going to check out. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. And folks, uh, you really got to check out, uh, I really love Nildis Brandom, the, uh, we'll call it the audio, uh, short format audio magazine online. You can go to ndstories.com. Am I correct? You are exactly correct. And you can go to iTunes for Nildis Brandom. Yep. And uh, we are going to be having a, uh, just like the, the promo we played on the 18th. That's as we're recording. That's this coming Sunday. That's right. This coming Sunday, uh, we'll be doing it live, I believe, and uh, then it'll be also will also be available in the Nildis Brandom uh, yes. podcast stream. It, it will be uh, broadcast live online. We- you can go to ndstories.com or bearcrawling.com to figure out uh, exactly where to go to listen to it live. There will be much PM. much cranking uh, cracking of nuts. I believe will be the Nutcracker. Yes. Quite possibly, yes. Uh, that's at uh, 4 p.m. Pacific. And if you live on the East Coast, move. <clears throat> I don't do that as well as Alex does, I know, but still. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you can uh, pick it up at any time thereafter at ndstories.com uh, on the website or in the podcast feed. Uh, the music is playing. You have to pretend the music's in the background, by the way. We put it in in post. <laughs> And that's when we say, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming by, folks, and uh, you have a great week. Take care, everyone. Stay tuned, book readers and book listeners. Paul the Book Guy will be back next week. Same book time, same book channel.